It's a little uh, disingenuous in some ways, I think, this term letting go. We spoke last night about how the fact that letting go actually, because it sounds very volitional, sounds like something I do. And actually when I'm busy trying to let go, as we said last night, that tends to be more of a, a pushing away. And we spoke about how the fact that actually letting go, wisdom is what lets go. Letting go happens quite naturally as a result of seeing that we're holding on tightly, of seeing how we're holding on tightly, of seeing what we're holding on tightly to, and of really feeling the cost, the pain, the tension the agitation, the narrowness, the stress of that holding on. When we see that, why would we carry on doing it, right? When we see that, oh, naturally. When we really see the cost naturally, it drops away. It self-liberates, we might say. Whatever the it is that we've got contracted around. So the the word the Buddha used, which of course is in Pali, anupadana, means non-clinging. Upadana is to, to contract around, to cling on to. Anupadana suggests that kind of that fluidity that freedom, that spaciousness of abiding without clinging on, without being tight around. It's really abiding as a consciousness that doesn't get stuck anywhere. And consciousness that's attuned to what's happening, open to what's happening engaged with what's happening, curious about what's happening, embracing of what's happening. And that contact with, that curiosity about, that care for what's happening can spread and spread and spread, can deepen and deepen and deepen. And our sense of what life is and what this is that participates in life can similarly broaden and deepen. Endlessly, it seems. When it's not stuck around something. And that's pretty much a definition of the unliberated human condition. Is that we're stuck around something. If we're not experiencing a fluid free participation in life. It's because we're stuck around something. There's a couple of sort of pithy statements that the Buddha gives in the text, which I remember hearing very, very early on in my own practice, probably in Thailand, in in the monastery. They're kind of quite sort of standard, famous, pithy one-liners of the Buddha. One where he says... Where there's clinging, there's suffering. Where there's suffering, there's clinging. Boom. 
in that sense of, you know, how easily when where there's suffering, we look for whose fault it is, for example. It often seems to be somebody else's fault that I'm feeling agitated or angry or upset or confused. It's kind of comfortable to make it somebody else's fault. Well, sometimes it seems to be life's fault. Life's just sort of got it in for me in some way. As if life has got nothing better to do than conspire to give me a hard time. And we don't tend to look. Well, we'd rather look outwards. So we blame. It's your fault, whoever the you is, or it's, it's life's fault, or it's my fault. And the blame terms are, oh, I should have done it differently. Oh, I'm no good. Oh, I something, something. It's the same thing. It doesn't really blame going outward, blame going inward. We're not really looking. It's not about fault. And so the suggestion of the Buddha with this line, where this clinging, there's suffering. Right? If there's tightening around something, that's going to lead to that tension, to that consciousness getting stuck, to our sense of life being limited to whatever our consciousness is stuck around. And similarly, seen from the other side, if there's suffering, it's because that being stuck is there. It's like a flag when we're having a hard time. So, you know, during these days, during this morning, how easily when knees are hurting and mine's just got bored and the guy up the front saying, oh, sustain your practice of connecting with the breathing. And you're thinking, enough already. How easy it is to think it's some fault. Oh, it's because of the schedule's fault. You know, how what stupid to make the meditation so long. <laughs> or whatever. Rather than looking for well, this is the suggestion, where's the clinging? What's my consciousness got stuck around? So it's kind of beautiful because it's, it's a teaching that it's not a position. It's not telling us uh, the way things are in a way that we're encouraged to accept or reject or believe in. What would be the point of believing in anything around suffering, clinging? No, the encouragement is to investigate. Right? <clears throat> when you're having a hard time because of feeling anxious, confused, angry, hurt, uh, agitated, etc., etc. Fill in your own, you know, favourite where you get stuck. And to to just to see what am I holding on to tightly. So over the next few days, really, in in this time of the afternoon... I'd like to explore in a, in a kind of fairly uh, sort of progressive or formal way some of the classic ways our consciousness gets stuck or tight. And these, these correspond, there'll be some, uh, well, we'll see how it unfolds, but <clears throat> they correspond basically to the, the three, what the Buddha pointed out as the three types of clinging. It's always interested, you know. So these teachings and this practice 
definitely comes from the Buddhist tradition. And yet, because it's a very living tradition, and I think it is a healthy thing, it's kind of, it's added to or modified or, or kind of, uh, its, ch- its shape changes, hopefully. I mean, sometimes its shape doesn't change, and then it ceases to become a living tradition. But hopefully, its shape changes to fit the container, right? So the way that we sit together sort of fits our cultural container to a certain extent. It looks a little bit different to a monastery in Asia. It looks a bit different to how it did two and a half thousand years ago in the forests of northern India. And that's totally appropriate, I think, that the form changes and evolves and fits the culture. And yet at the same time, it's kind of breathtaking that some of these things don't change. Some of the, these things are timeless truths. And the things that the Buddha was pointing to two and a half thousand years ago in rural India about what, how the mind gets stuck seem to be exactly the same as the way our minds in this different socio-cultural context two and a half thousand years later, how they also get stuck. So the three, the three things the Buddha mainly refers to, so in the formal language of the tradition, those of you who are familiar with it, he talks about clinging to sense desires, clinging to views and opinions, and clinging to existence and non-existence, which might sound a little mysterious, but we'll get there in a couple of days. So if we speak in more contemporary language, we might say, and get stuck around what I want, formal language, sensual desire in the tradition, what I want, views and opinions, what I think, and existence and non-existence, for now, let's say, who I take myself to be. A sense of who I am and how consciousness can get very stuck around who I am. And the way who I am seems to be so important and so in the middle of things. And you know, I look out and there's a bunch of yous out there, all fairly indistinct from one another. right? Just a bunch of people in blankets. But I'm much more significant than that, right? I'm really in the middle of things, you know. I don't know. So that sense of uh, who I am and who I'm not, existence and non-existence. So the suggestion is that we get tight around what I want, what I think, and who I take myself to be. So for today, I'd just like to look a little bit at some of the ways we get stuck around what I want, stuck on wanting. And I prefer to use the word wanting than desire, because desire is a bit of a charged word. Well, wanting is too, but... Desire is, often, desire is often slightly charged with a kind of lustful uh, association. There's a kind of, of course, it, there can be desire for all kinds of things, but it's got a sort of sexual overtone, desire. So wanting is a little bit more neutral. So 
what we might call, loosely, first of all, the worldly or the ordinary um, way we get stuck around wanting. And that is that we just tend to blindly follow all our wants. Right? We want something, we try and get it. And sometimes we might want something that's sanctioned. No, that's, what's the opposite of sanctioned? Unsanctioned, censured, not allowed by our own kind of moral code or by the law or something. And then we might try, kind of do our best to not follow that desire. But basically, we want something, it means we want it. So the want leads to the pursuit of. And look at our world. This is the world of wanting. And we've had an extra two and a half thousand years on the Buddha to evolve uh, all the ways to offer each other means to fulfill our wanting. We live in a spectacularly sophisticated world of want-satisfying productions and products and opportunities. And so even though we can find you know, I mean, a vast array, a vast kind of sophistication. Now you've got the internet, anything you can want. Oh, hold on. Google, oh, there it is. And yet how interesting that with two and a half thousand years of development of how to fulfill our various wants, it doesn't seem to do anything at all to give us any ease or space around the basic mechanism of getting stuck on wanting. Right? The, the, the nature of wanting is that it's, it's endless. One want produces another want, another want. We'll look at the mechanism of that a little bit. So that's what we might call the worldly view, it's just pursuing wanting. And then there's what we might call the uptight pseudo-spiritual view, which is where we try to kind of basically suppress wanting but we might cloak it in language called transcending desire. Something like that. I'm going to transcend desire, be free from desire. I remember in the monastery in Thailand also, there's a chanting the Metta Sutta, and the, the verses on the, the Buddha's teachings on love. And then towards the end of the Metta Sutta, it talks about abiding free from desire. Free from all sense desire. And I would always chant that line a bit half-heartedly. There's a lot of other beautiful lines. Let me get there. Free from, free from all sense desire. Is that, is that possible? Free from all sense desire? Then I, is that even desirable? <laughs> and I think, what kind of vision of life is there where I might even aspire to or, or uh, yearn for abiding in a way where no sense desire would arise. No desire for anything seen, felt, heard, touched, tasted, imagined. No movement of wanting. I'm not sure about that. So sometimes in orthodox um, religious 
types of situations, there's this kind of pendulum swing from recognizing the problem of the endless pursuit of what I want to a pendulum swing back that posits some kind of transcendence of or some kind of beyond desire, free from desire. I think it's much more helpful and healthy and real to look at the possibility of freedom in desire, to be free in sensual desire, for the free movement of sensual desire. And free in the movement of wanting is very different in flavor from an idea of freedom from wanting. So as we investigate, and I think this is really important, there's no, there's no value judgment around wanting. There's not the suggestion, which again one finds sometimes in the more kind of uptight, orthodox, uh, religious ideas, but at least the way I'm speaking about it, there's no sense that desire is a bad thing, a wrong thing, or something to get rid of. The idea that wanting is something to get rid of or transcend, I would say, is just as problematic as the idea that wanting is something to just be ceaselessly pursued and fulfilled and got, gotten, got hold of. And the Buddha certainly wasn't interested in us taking any kind of position. This, isn't, uh, this is a practice, not a position. It's an encouragement to us to investigate. We were calling, out, uh, calling last night finding out in real time, finding out moment by moment. So the encouragement is to find out what, how am I with wanting? To find out how does the mechanism of desire operate in me? To find out where do I get tight? Where does consciousness get stuck? Where does the possibility, and how does the possibility of a free, fluid participation in life get reduced to the obsessing around something? So, a few, a few reflections on that. A few ways, while we're here, as well as in any other moment in our lives, a few ways that we can uh, find out about wanting. The kind of energetic movement, while well, it can go in, in, in different ways, when there's the focusing on something we do want, could be anything. So it could be that kind of wanting of sexual desire, fantasy, or the heat of that. Could be wanting to be somewhere else other than here. Could be wanting for some future moment that seems so attractive to us. Could be just wanting the bell to ring for the end of the meditation. We tend energetically to lean towards what we want. That's, the, that's the, the tightening. That's the clinging of consciousness that we can actually recognize energetically, physically. 
It's kind of, mm, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit, right? <laughs> it's almost as if, if I lean forward, if I lean towards, like if I lean towards the bell, it, I'll hear it ring sooner. The sound will get to me quicker. And the other, the other thing then, if, we, if we're uh, in touch with wanting in the sense of not wanting, tends to be a kind of a, a pulling back, a withdrawing from, a sort of shrinking from. Don't want, don't want. As energetically, again, I'm exaggerating of course, but energetically it feels like that. The attempt to get away from, to defend against. That's one, of the, that's one of the reasons in emphasizing our posture and meditation. That sense of the kind of bright, upright, open posture. And actually re-establishing that sometimes in a subtle way can make a real difference when we're caught in obsessing around some object. Right? Caught energetically in a leaning forward towards or in a leaning back against. So in a way, this is mostly just an open question. You know, what do you find out when you sense into wanting? And then some reflections on what you tend to find out. What the Buddha found out. What everybody else I've ever spoken to who's paid attention to this stuff also seems to find out. Certainly what I've found out. So my assumption is that might be what you find out. Right? But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want it to be an open question. Right? I'm, not, I'm not at all interested in convincing you that this is what happens when we investigate wanting. It's rather just to maybe make a little map of the kind of territory of wanting. And then the encouragement to, to walk the territory, to feel into it, to see what happens. So when, you know, when, you're, when your attention's caught up in something you want, feel for the energetic contraction. Right? When there's something specific, the leaning towards, I want, I want, or something specific that we don't like, the pulling back from, I don't want, I don't want. Or sometimes that, that strange, indistinct place where we know we want something other than this, but we've no idea what it is. Sometimes we call that boredom, right? Or restlessness. And then we see the fridge. Ah, oh, it must be in there. You know, you go and look in the fridge. Oh, no, oh, let's find something in the fridge. Oh, it's not quite that. Oh, and you see the TV. You go through the show. So that's a kind of... So energetically, there's the wanting in relation to the pleasant pull towards, the wanting in the relation to the unpleasant, pulling away from, and then the wanting in relationship to the fact there's nothing particular, nothing strong enough, pleasant or unpleasant, to really engage our attention. So the energetic movement is one of a kind of like searching around like a ghost for something. So one movement goes like that, forward. One movement goes like that, no, backward. And one movement just sort of goes outwards like this. Into vagueness. Until we latch on to something. Oh, that. And then the forward movement. Or until we find, oh, this state of 
so unpleasant and the backward movement. So whether it's something distinct that you're wanting or not wanting, movement towards or movement against, or whether it's that vague, roaming, restless, uh, hoping for something, what would would happen if we're awake enough, attuned enough, interested enough, connected enough, aware enough, to rather than just obsessing about the thing, the person, the situation, the object, the experience that I want or don't want, if we would actually get more interested in the energetic uh, contraction that's involved. Try that out, you know, while you're here. There's plenty of, plenty of things to want and not want. And in a way, you know, I often think of a retreat, pract- retreat life as kind of our normal life, but under the microscope. You know, it's the same things. It can seem very different, but we're, we're sitting a bit, walking a bit, eating a bit, resting a bit. Same, right? Just in a kind of uh, slightly, in a simplified way, in a slowed down way, in a quiet way. And why, in a simplified and silent way, so as to attune? So even though it's, it's, it's a lot simpler, you know, you can, lunch can become the great holy grail of the day. And whereas normally we might not think a great deal about lunch, when there's no fridge, when there's no TV, when there's no conversation, when the phone isn't ringing for us, when some of the kind of instruments that, that force feed us a lot of things to want all through the day aren't there, then the little things can take on some great magnitude. No. So the whole morning can just can seem like it's just a kind of just the run up to lunch. Or the bell, you know, it takes on this great significance, like I was saying earlier. As if something great will happen when the bell rings. We say, oh, come on, if only the bell would ring. What, you know, what's going to happen? The bell rings. Walking meditation. <laughs> right? Big deal. And then we go out walking meditation, and after a little, oh, if only the bell would ring. Come on, when's the bell going to ring? Keep checking for the bell to ring. But what's it gonna, all it's going to mean is sitting meditation. So whatever it is, that assumes some importance, or the the relationships, even though we're not speaking to each other, the way you can build a whole whole sense of other people, how the wanting, or the not wanting. Sometimes in the, uh, in this kind of scene, it's called the the vipassana romance, and the way you kind of fall in love with somebody in the silence, and you've got no idea about them, but uh, you can build a whole uh, fantasy life. Or the opposite, the vipassana vendetta. No. And somebody seems, you know, always leave their sandals in the way of your sandals or whatever it might be. And you can, you can just construct. So whatever appears with the energetic pull towards or pull against, whether it's something concrete here, lunch, other people, the bell, or whether it's something more abstracted than, that our minds go to in the rest of our life, 
somebody that we're involved with, some situation that we, we keep turning around, some fantasy that we keep giving ourselves to. You get to investigate the mechanism of wanting, not through just uh, obsessing around the object, but by sensing into the movement itself, the heat, the tension, the, the pressure of wanting. Sometimes, of course, wanting can be completely unproblematic. Sometimes it's unproblematic because it's just about what it's about. So, like, for example, haven't eaten for a few hours, feel hungry, want lunch, eat lunch. Not not at all problematic. Hungry, want food, eat food. No more wanting food. When it's just about what it's about, it's not so problematic. But of course, sometimes it's not about what it appears to be about. Food is a good example of that. Sometimes wanting food doesn't got very much to do at all to do with being hungry. Sometimes wanting food is something more to do with wanting comfort, wanting... Uh, pleasure, wanting that feeling of fullness that we might get from eating as a kind of, to compensate for some inner feeling of unfullness, of emptiness or hollowness or uneasiness. So it's when our, want, when our wanting isn't really about what we say it's about. That's another place that... Uh, we get very hooked in. And same thing like with the, the bell ringing. Oh, if only the bell would ring. Of course it's not about the bell ringing. If it was really, if the bell ringing would really satisfy you, I'd be just sat here ringing, ringing, <laughs> ringing. That's the fundamental delusion of wanting. Is that the thing I want is going to actually satisfy me. We think when I get it, that, whatever it is, that person, that experience, that thing, then, you know, then what? Philosophically, we we wouldn't think that. Philosophically, we, we know that it wouldn't be happily ever after. But... In the moment, we, we, and again, you have to see for yourself, we tend to really invest in that as if it were true. That that would really do it for me. And the reason we fall for that again and again and again is because in the moment of getting it, oh, there's a moment of relief from wanting. The contraction, the pressure eases up. So we say, oh, I want the bell to ring, I want the bell to ring. And then, ding, oh. And we mistake the satisfaction for the object. We think that the bell has given us some relief. Well, the bell did whatever. What gave us the relief was the softening of the contraction of wanting. 
So again, to investigate as wanting arises. It's just to, to feel the, when you feel the, uh, the pressure in it, to see, might the release of the tension of wanting be possible without the object? I used to do that when, when I was on retreat, when I'd have pain in my knees and struggle and my t- oh, still 20 minutes to go. And I'd, I'd have that thing, and the bell rings, oh. And then I started to get it. Oh, it's the ah oh, that's relieving, not the bell. So then when I would struggle, I'd say, okay, let the bell ring. And just internally I'd say, ding. Because <laughs> oh. that's the letting go, right? The letting go of that struggling with the aching knees, struggling with the idea of how much time is left. So, there again, to investigate in wanting whether it's possible to just to drop the tension, the agitation, the narrowing, the obsessing. It's another part of what happens around wanting, is we lose the rest of the universe. It's like tunnel vision, when all we can see is the thing I want, the person I want, the experience I want. But of course it's just one, you know, it's like when knees are hurting in meditation. I just, uh, movement away, but everything seems to be about knees. But meanwhile, oh, there's light and sunshine and birdsong and breath and space and a whole bunch of other bodily sensations. Also a way of investigating wanting, investigating that sense of tunnel vision and actually just opening up to the fact that that one thing that your attention's got stuck around, that's just one phenomena among a limitless vibratory sea of phenomena. So all of that, that investigating the wanting in the wanting. Remember I spoke yesterday about the way the Buddha encourages that, you know, knowing the breath in the breath, knowing the feeling in the feeling. Knowing the wanting in the wanting as a way to open it up. And that's, that's the middle way. Right? That's the way between the extremes of just trying to get everything, just that kind of relentless, exhausting, endless pursuit, wanting, getting, wanting, getting, wanting, getting, wanting, getting, or wanting, getting sometimes, wanting, failing to get, getting frustrated, wanting something else, etc. On the one hand, or the other hand of kind of trying to adopt some kind of morally high-grounded spiritual ideal of transcending wanting. No. Investigate the wanting so that the contraction of it can free up. So that the, the, there's something fluid that's possible. Another way of, of exploring the movement of desire is, in a, is with, through reflection. So that's the first way through inquiry, right? Really looking in to see what's happening. 
And the second way through reflection, and a very useful, very powerful reflection is, what do I really want? So a question you can ask yourself again and again in many, many situations. What do I really want? You know, when, you're, when you initially think that what you want is the bell to ring, for example, at the end of meditation. What do I really want? Oh, I want to get away from this discomfort. Oh, but what do I really want? And you start to tune into the discomfort. Oh, I'm, I want peace. Oh, and you start to feel into that possibility, that yearning in the heart for peace. Oh, what do I really want? And you start to connect with the, this extraordinary, potent longing for a freer life, a more open, more spacious, more authentic life. That's a very beautiful thing to be in touch with. But it's often masked by a few other layers of wanting that might start off as, I want lunch, or I want the bell to ring, or I want, you know, whatever it is. So it's a very powerful way, and again, so there's an invitation to drop below the more superficial layers of what I think I want, what stands out, what the initial pull is towards or away from. What do I really want? And that's often a way into the other way of working with wanting, which is to really let yourself want. To really let the the force of desire, the power of yearning, the, the surge of longing, to really let it have its life, have its expression. Sometimes we're kind of afraid of, of letting that happen. It can feel like, oh, if I just let this happen, wow, I'll just, you know, that I'll somehow become wild or crazed or voracious in some way. We might be afraid of becoming sexually voracious or, or uh, you know, or like orally voracious. It, it can feel like I'll just, I'll just be some kind of mad, out-of-control wanter. <laughs> well, there's only one way to find out. Right? So again, that asks us to not fixate so much on the object, but on the energy of wanting itself, which initially usually feels hot, kind of prickly, It feels uncomfortable. And because it's uncomfortable, that's why we just want to get the object as quickly as possible so as to get the wanting part out of the way. So we get the object, oh, some relief from the wanting. And then we're so glad there's some relief from from some wanting. But into that space, because we've, by pursuing the thing and getting the thing and relying on the relief, we've just reinforced the pattern for the nth time. And so very quickly, another object appears. Oh, now I want that. Off I go. 
So to let yourself feel the hot prickliness, what initially often feels, you have to find out for yourself. Again, what does wanting actually feel like in your body? So there's this energetic movement towards the thing I want or away from the thing I don't want or outwards in search of something that I want to get hold of. So as as well as the, the kind of directionality of it, towards, away from, outwards, what does it feel like? What does wanting feel like? Find out, friends. How could we live a sane life, a free life, when the force of wanting is so powerful if we don't actually know it, what it's like? If we've never actually found out about wanting from the inside. And then we might be rather surprised, delighted even, to find that if you really inhabit the force of wanting, if you, if, and as you inhabit it, it's not so much about the thing, the object, It's not so much about me getting the thing, the object. It's about allowing this kind of elemental force. It's in a way we could say the whole of life is desire acting out. Life's wish to express itself, explore itself, produce itself, manifest itself. I mean, look at all this, especially this time of year. It's like the the kind of uh, great effulgent, uh, freely expressed wish of life to just show up like this. You might see if you can sense that. I mean, walking around the gardens here at Gaia House, beautiful. And it might turn out to be, to our surprise, that wanting itself, when it's freed from its obsession around the object, is that kind of juicy, sensual, full, expressive, um, longing, longing for expression, longing for freedom. Because... It seems to be at the bottom of all our longing, all our wanting, that that's what we really deeply long for. We long to know our inclusion in life. We long to know our rest in life. We long to know our freedom of being. And the comedy of that is that we try to find it by getting this and getting that, while all the time the freest place we could possibly be, the most peaceful place we could possibly be, the most easeful way of abiding in life that we could possibly know is always and only ever available right here. So to allow the longing, to let your heart be moved by it. To let yourself be carried in that effulgent movement. 
to let the heart's longing sing, shine. And it may be that as we get less obsessed about what we want and less afraid of allowing the movement of longing itself, it may be that the matter of whether to follow or whether to not follow resolves itself rather elegantly. It may be that rather than being caught between trying to get everything I want or trying to get rid of desire itself, those problematic extremes, it may be that the the movement resolves itself, free in desire, to freely inhabit wanting, to let life move in us, Freely, fluidly, fully. This is the invitation of our time together here. And this is the possibility of freeing our consciousness from getting stuck around wanting. So use this time well, friends. Find out where your consciousness is going, how it's getting stuck. So that each of us can know the freedom and fluidity and fullness of being. Okay. So there's about half an hour before tea. That's half an hour you can spend sitting quietly, walking, reflecting, tracking the way want arises. And I just encourage you as you, oh, now I've got to decide what to do. As you said, just to, to stay attuned to the movement of wanting and seeing how you, you know, so that these aren't good ideas, right, that we're exploring together. They're, uh, they're injunctions. They're, they're ways to apply that to how your life unfolds in the next moments, in the next minutes, in the next hours. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.